We're turning this morning to Matthew chapter 20 as we continue through our study of Matthew together. I'm so thankful to have a voice today. It is very thankful for your prayers for that. I have a full week ahead of of preaching that I've been looking forward to and preparing for trusting the Lord would give voice, and He has, and I'm thankful for that today. If He will continue to give me breath and oxygen, I will be much appreciative. So as we have our time this day, I was thinking about how we often need to be squared back up with the purposes of God. It is sometimes that He takes us aside and and I can say that it has been good for me to be afflicted, but there's been much that He has brought to bear, the old truths that we know, but has brought them to hide in new ways. As we think about why God does what He does, not merely what He allows, but what He has decreed in our lives from all of eternity, and we have a narrative in His story, and everything that happens is for His glory. And everything that we do should be for His glory. Do you know that the Bible is not primarily about winning souls to Christ? It's not about us. It's about God and His glory. One of the contributing ways of that is bringing people into the kingdom. But when you go and share the gospel with someone... You need to be thinking primarily about the glory of God and let Him bring or not bring that person to Christ and He will be glorified whether He hardens the heart of Pharaoh or whether He brings a a Jacob to Himself and rejects Esau. It's the glory of God. It's about God. And when we go into our prayer time, remember it's the glory of God of God, meaning that you need to spend time adoring God and thinking about Him and letting the Psalms then train us, bless the Lord, O my soul, and bless the Lord all that is within me, and bless Him for His holy name, and forget not all of the works that He has done, and then continue to rehearse that. God knows you have problems. He knows you have needs. It's part of His very narrative for your life. The reason you and you suffered this week, it was part of, of, a, of a plan. The reason Kelly went wrestling with a, a zero-turn mower down the hill and he's here today is a, a part of the narrative that God has for His life, for His glory. When we live each day of our life Well, give Him thanks for that breath today, right now, for His glory. And when He decides to take you as a martyr in the sufferings of great pain, that's for His glory. And you can rejoice to suffer for His great name because of His glory, see? And you don't fight against those things. You actually accept them with with newness of heart and with joy, knowing that this is about God more than it is about me. And yet the blessing of it all is you cannot be more blessed, more fulfilled than when you actually live for that glory and desire it 
in your health and in your sickness and your life and in your death. Because He has promised for all of eternity that you will enjoy the glory with Him as you see Him as He is. Now, that, that in and of itself is a message that I could just continue. And it is not unrelated to what is before us regarding greatness and how to get there. And Jesus was not minimizing the desire for greatness, but He's going to explain it in a whole different way and turn it upside down from what the way you think about it and the path to get there as we begin in the 20th chapter of Matthew, beginning at verse 17, going down through verse 28. Now hear the Word of God. And Jesus going down to Jerusalem took the twelve disciples apart in the way, and He said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, And the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and they shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall arise again. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring certain things of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? And she said unto him, Grant that these, my two sons, may sit the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of my cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. Jesus called them unto him and says, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. Our gracious Father, as we come to this Your Word today, we marvel that You have stooped and condescended to such a low estate to give us Your Word. But we marvel even more that You sent Your Son to be made lower than the angels and to be made as the likeness of humanity, taking on flesh and blood, becoming fully human, and yet divinely God, to die and suffer for us and to be raised again on the third day. Why would such a God do this when you could have started all over and spoken a new world into existence? And here we are this day standing, hearing your words spoken fresh to us, 
and we hear the greatness and the love and the majesty and the grace and the mercy and the goodness of our great God, and we stand here privileged today not only to have life and breath, but to have the Spirit of God in us being transformed into the likeness of Your Son. On the pathway to greatness, we now suffer for Thy great name's sake. But we, like the disciples, need the Spirit now to teach us the truth of the matter and how to be like our Lord and how to have the right spirit and the right mind that our God has had for us as we live our lives in the context of one another. And so we pray for your spirit to bless now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, we each have an innate desire to have our lives to be lived purposefully. And the scripture says that as life of man is, he's like the grass. And he will, in a very soon amount of time, he's going to die, breathe his last, and he will not be remembered. You know, isn't that something that we, we will not be remembered like we really hope? And that's how life is. Your great-grandchildren will great-great-grandchildren won't know much about you at all. And there may be some faint memories and it's, the generations go by. And, but there's this innate longing to have a purposeful life, to, to have meaning in life and to, to count for something, to have a lasting impact on this world even after we're gone. And yet this is a part of what it means to be in the image of God. God has designed this in our very lives as our humanity. It's a natural part of our makeup, and we we do have this innate desire because of this, but the fall happened, see? And when we fell into sin, that image was marred, and, and everything along with it, and the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we process life, And we've turned it really upside down because we suppress the truth in our own unrighteousness. And so we ourselves grow up not only in a world, but a part of the world that are people that pursue greatness in a way that greatness not only will not be found, but greatness is defined by fallenness. We pursue degrees for greatness or career advancements for greatness. We we, we pursue power or status or fame or fortune or affluence or great achievements or world records or high positions of leadership, and a host of other pursuits, all the intent in an attempt to fulfill this longing. And this is the world we grow up in. This is the part of the fallen image, see. 
It's a value system of the world. It's a sense of achievement and measurements of success are a part of the air we breathe. And we've embraced this. We're formed by the way of thinking this way and of the pursuit. And yet when we become a Christian, God does something radical in our lives. And one of the most radical things he does is he takes a focus that is bent upon the self and upon the needs and upon the ego and upon the self-centeredness and upon the selfishness, upon all of the things to accumulate and to appease and to, to make peaceful and to make comfortable this self, to make this self the, the name that we wish it to have. He takes all of that and he puts God in the center of it. And if that has not happened in your life, you're not a Christian, you're not regenerated, you're not saved because that is what regeneration is all about. And, and to be a Christian means that you are a new creature in Christ. And you've got a new center, a new purpose, a new way of living, a new way of thinking. And so therefore you are, are qualified and characterized by being those who are poor in spirit. You're characterized by, by being blessed because you are ones who mourn over your sins and the sins of others. You're blessed because you are meek and you acknowledge these truths about yourself even to the place where other people come and point out your own sins and you can just say, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And not get all defensive about it because you know it's true. And you have a, a new, renewed, not, it's really a, quite a brand new kind of hunger and thirst for righteousness that is being restored in you. And there's a mercy that you have because you know that God Himself has been merciful and not rewarded you. So the way that you interact with other people. And there's a, a love and a joy and a peace that you have. A love that is not a way that the world even knows about, but it, it bears all things and it loves the truth and it's kind and it's long-suffering and it's just not even something that the world knows. See, this is all brand new. You're a new creature. You're part of now the new heavens and the new earth. And so united with Jesus Christ, even yea, a part of the glorification of the resurrection that is yet to come. We have a new way of being human because the image of God is being restored in us in Jesus Christ. It's a new way and everything begins to emerge with newness. And Jesus lives out this example. Everything about Jesus' life is an example to us. And it's more than that. But at a minimum, it's an example of what the perfect human looks like and how to live in that perfection. Jesus taught us. And he taught us, and he taught us, and he repeated himself, and he repeated himself. Because we're so dull in getting it. We've been forged 
in the world's way of thinking. And it's so difficult when things get turned upside down and it's completely contrary to the way that we think about things or the way that we've been living to actually believe it. If you don't believe it, you're not going to live it. You're not going to give yourself to it. This is where a lot of our self and pride is just has to be uh, flourishing. So that as we decrease, Christ in all of His glory will increase. So we're on another one of those occasions where Jesus pulls His disciples aside now. It's within days when Jesus is going to be betrayed. This is right before they're entering into Jerusalem. We're right into this almost final week. And he needs them to, to start getting it. And he pulls them aside again. And he's going to repeat a teaching that he is, he's told them before. And he's going to tell them in the midst of this teaching about what's about to happen, what true greatness really is, and the pathway in order to get there. And that's what this message is about. The pathway to true greatness. And the first thing we see is in verses 17 through 19, is Jesus is fully aware of His sufferings, and that those sufferings are the pathway to greatness. In our narrative before us, Jesus then takes His disciples aside, and once again He explains that the true Messiah must suffer and die and be raised again on the third day. This is the third time He's told them this. And it's clear, it's explicit, there's actually no room for interpreting it another way, but his disciples just sit there with this kind of, they didn't know what to do with the information. They didn't know how to process that. They couldn't register this. See, they've grown up in a world where in their world and their way of thinking, that Messiah who is to come is going to be a world power. He would be the king who would sit on the most powerful throne that the world has ever known. And it would be an everlasting and continuing dominion that would never be overthrown. And all of that is true. But the only way they could think about it is a political power that would come and do this in such a way that they're thinking about it in terms of their Roman oppressors. We won't it to be like that. And we want Rome to be overthrown. Or Alexander the Great before them. That's what our Messiah is going to be, but he's just going to be a little bit bigger and stronger and his reign will be a little longer. And what they were thinking as Jews is they had a concept of what the Messiah was going to come and do, and they had the concept of the only way they could think about it, and to turn that upside down, they just sit there like a deer in the headlights. They couldn't get it. They didn't know what to do with this information. And they're going to have to face the reality of this within days. And no doubt when Jesus told him these things, 
now for the third time, their faces were blank. Didn't know how to synthesize even those very simple, clear, explicit statements which went against every way that they have been indoctrinated from their youth and the air that they breathed. He had told them that kingdoms and thrones would be theirs and they would have great rewards and they had picked up and given up and followed Jesus. And he had just got finished telling them about some of these rewards. But when he starts to talk to them about his sufferings, they don't know what to do with that. And that's why this passage is so vital to anyone who is a true believer in Jesus Christ. The fact is, if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, you will reign with Him. You will judge angels. And all that we are and all that we have is by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. And He is resurrected. And we are in vital bodily and spiritual union with Him who is in bodily form and seated at the right hand of God the Father. And we in Him are seated in the heavenlies. That's who we are. And what we have received in Christ is far greater than what was ever given up and lost in Adam. We're not merely just saved out of our sin and have the curse removed, but in Christ we reign. In Christ you are heir of all things and the inheritors of this world. If you are in Christ, you have nothing but an inestimable unfathomable, blessed eternity, the likes of which you cannot even imagine, and it's all in front of you. That's who you are in Christ. Well, how does sufferings fit into all that? The Lord's statement is so clear. It's evident at this point in his life, he has full knowledge of all of the details that are about to transpire. There was no surprises when he went into Jerusalem what was going to happen. He is now in full awareness. He's aware of the Scriptures. He is aware of His Father's will that we read about in Isaiah 53. And it pleased the Father to bruise him. How, how, do you, how, do you, how do you, as a father, can you even conceive and think this way? And you can if it's the glory of God that is the center and the primary focus of all of your life, and you give yourself to it, and you resign yourself to it. 
And here was Jesus. He had the full acceptance of what Messiah had to experience. He had the full acceptance of the very sufferings that was appointed to him by his own Father for the sake of his glory to be revealed to us, his people. And that in itself is a sign of greatness to be able to accept what you have in full awareness of it, to know far in advance and to deliberately bow your knee to the will of God for sufferings. And something in this announcement underscores even his greatness. This is the third occasion of informing his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer and die. And yet in this announcement, you had the most detailed explanation of it that you don't have in the other two. And he says in this one that he is now going to be turned over to Gentiles. He will be mocked, he will be scourged, and he will be crucified. That's a detail he didn't give them before. He knew what was coming. The most shameful death at that time that was ever known and the most humiliating death would be his by the hands of Gentiles after his own people had betrayed him and fled. And there's great difficulties when you know something that's coming and you know it's coming in full details, but you have to wait and you have to wait for it to finally happen it really heightens our sense of dread, does it not? I really hate to use this illustration because it's going to hit very close to home with one of you. <laughs> but if you ever waited for a surgery and you have it on the schedule, sorry, Keith, and people know the surgery is coming and and there would be someone who's had the same kind of surgery. And they come and they fill you in on all the details. And how difficult the, the, the surgery, how the pain that it's going to have, and all of the recovery that's going to go on. They fill you in all the details. And you're just sitting here. And now you've got to wait in the full knowledge of all of that. And that, that's more difficult than getting the surgery and getting on with it. I was mindful of that when... Our brother Terry went through this knee surgery just a couple of weeks ago, and he was giving us all those details. I'm thinking, oh, I wonder what Keith is thinking. If you don't know, Keith is scheduled for the same surgery next month, and he could use our prayers between now and then, not only knowing the full details, but having to suffer the pain from it that he's going through. But in Jesus' mind, he knew the full details of what was going to be laid, and he accepted it. And he was teaching his disciples about it. And he was ready for it. But he's suffering in the process of it. Even having bowed his knee in full knowledge. Attending the things to go do what he is about to do. And he will inform what his mind is possessed of in these sufferings and the anticipation as he explains all of the details to his disciples. And that's part of his greatness. And that he subjected himself to the Father's will 
but he does it in the full light of all of the knowledge, how thankful we are that God doesn't tell us what's about to come tomorrow. Oftentimes we can't bear it, but he did. We get to this end of the passage, we're going to see how Jesus himself refers to himself as an example in this regard to us when it comes to a matter of obtaining greatness. This one that God the Father put above all thrones and dominions in heaven and on earth, he obtained his position that way through sufferings. And even the Messiah passed through excruciating sufferings on his way to greatness. Verse 20 through 28 then begins to uh, explore our path to greatness after his likeness. And this idea of greatness comes up again. This is not the first time. In fact, in Matthew 18, just two chapters back, at that time it says in verse 1, the disciples came to Jesus. Who is the greatest in the kingdom was on their mind. And he took the rest of that chapter to deal with that question. And it comes up again. And this is the subject matter that we're talking about this morning. This subject of greatness and this innate desire that we have to, to live a purposeful life on this path to greatness, however, is the way that Jesus showed us. He is the pioneer. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one that blazed the trail. And we have to follow Him in this. And it is the path of suffering. Now, I know this morning, as you come in, in your humility this morning, you're not coming into the worship service thinking, how can I be great? What's, what's the way to greatness? I know that's not your position. But on the other hand, there is a proper reward that the Lord is not silent about. And there is a proper eminence that God does desire for His children and he's telling us about it. And he wants us to understand this in its proper framework. And there is a way to obtain this for God's glory. As Jesus pulls his disciples aside to inform them of what will shortly take place, clearly revealing the pathway to his own preeminence that the Father had prescribed from him, for him, and this will be unavoidable an inescapable suffering. What immediately follows in that very context is so insensitive and so self-seeking that for us to read about it is just repugnant. The mother of James and John. I thought about this in my mind's eye for a moment because these are grown men. The only thing we know much about their father is he was thunder. And these were the sons of thunder. But old mama was pretty strong too. Come here, John. Come here, Jamie. Lord, when you get into your kingdom, I would like for this one to sit on your left and one of the others to sit on your right. That's what I want for my boys. What you think? 
I mean, he just got finished telling them that he is going to Jerusalem to suffer and to be scourged and to be crucified upon the cross. And here she comes, and the boys are right there with her. Yeah, Mom? wonder what he's going to say. It's remarkable how these men who were so close to him during his earthly life were so preoccupied with their position and greatness. Two chapters back, they were asking the same question. And in just a couple of days in the upper room, they're going to bring it up again. And we're just like them. We have to admit we're fundamentally the same way in our fallen nature. And it's just hard for us to get it sometimes. And, and Jesus is so patient. He's so patient. But you know, there is a positive here. The mother of James and John, and, and James and John themselves, wouldn't have even asked the question if they did not believe. They had accepted Jesus as Messiah. They knew of His kingdom. They believed that He was the King. And he, they, they still had great faith, no matter what He just said, or I just don't know how to process this. But something great's about to happen, and we want to be a part of that greatness, Lord. See, there, there was actually some positive uh, aspects, because Jesus had told them they're going to sit on 12 thirds. They believed that. This was just in response and in the context of that, albeit a little skewed in its focus. So there is some pause. They just took him at his word. They believed it. And these are the, some of the only people in the entire country that believe Jesus at this point. So let's not be too hard on James and John and their mother who believe him at his word. But he responds to them. And the way he responds is he says, well, are they able to drink the cup that I am going to drink and to be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? Now what does that cup in baptism refer to? In several more chapters ahead, we're going to find that when Jesus goes into the garden to pray, He's going to bring along James and John and Peter a little further. He's going to put them down and say, pray that you enter not into temptation. And he's going to go even further and he's going to pray, Lord God, Father in heaven, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And three times he comes and prays about the cup to the place where he finally yields to the Father's will. Of course, he was already yielded to it, but you see the sufferings of our Lord being poured out before his Father, just completely being transparent with the challenge and the difficulty this was for him. And that cup was the cup of his suffering. And Jesus asked them, are you able to drink of my cup? 
The cup of Jesus' sufferings and greatness are inseparable. This is what he's going to try to get them to understand. There's something about greatness you're not understanding. And there's something about suffering you're not understanding. And there's something about these two that go together that you need to understand. And you're going to understand it by looking at me, by watching me, by understanding what is about to transpire. Because our own greatness and their greatness is following the same path that our Lord trod. And when it comes to anyone following Jesus, it's going to be the same path. If you're a Christian and you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you will suffer for His name's sake. You'll be just like your master in these things. Now let me clarify, Jesus' suffering was meritorious and propitiatory. And we're not suffering in that kind of way. We're not suffering in a meritorious way or a propitiatory way. It's not a suffering that we then enact upon ourselves like a monk in his asceticism where we end up buffeting our bodies for the sake of greatness. It's not a suffering that we righteously merit but as followers of Jesus and being faithful to that calling because we live in this fallen world and to be faithful and even living in the character of Jesus is going to bring you sufferings. And that is the pathway to greatness, to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus is going to lay His finger on the very things that keep you and me from following Him. Oh, how we want our personal peace and affluence. Do you know that is so contrary to the Christian way of thinking and the Christian heart? And yet that is what we often pursue. We just want peace. We want affluence. We want to be comfortable. And the path to following Jesus is evidenced by my supreme loyalty to Him, and my supreme love to Him. And the only way to become like Christ is to suffer for His great name's sake to the glory of God the Father. That is the supreme thing in our life. To live for the glory of God. Even in suffering. And so he tells them, my cup you will drink. They said, yes, we're, we're able to drink of that cup. Boy, you could just see the naivety. They're answering a question they had no idea about. Still kind of glazed like a deer in a headlight. Just didn't know how to synthesize the previous statement. Yeah, we're able to drink of the cup. And Jesus says, yeah, yes, you will. You will drink of the cup. You know, James was the first martyr of the twelve. Interesting how Jesus brings James into the somewhat the inner circle of the three, and he he actually is transparent. You, you, you would think that the way that Jesus approached James along with John and Peter, that, that James is going to have this prosperous, long ministry that we would know about. No, he, he was the first martyr with very little evidence of, of what he... But he lived for Jesus, and he suffered for Jesus. 
And, and John, the brother, would be the last one of the twelve in exile in Patmos. And so we have these two bookends. And we know from history and even from some of the, uh, what happened to so many of the others. But you know, sufferings for the disciples who began to get this after the Spirit of God taught them, it would be something of a joy to them, a satisfaction of them. It was really uh, an understanding of greatness that satisfied their soul because the, the glory of God was full in this. And we find that when they were in some of their first testings in Acts chapter 4, they were preaching the gospel in the temple and the Pharisees pulled them aside and, and we find that they beat them and they sent them back and as the disciples are leaving the presence, having suffered and been beaten for the... And it says, and what great joy they had for being counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. It was great joy, and we see the Apostle Paul not only being willing, but he endured sufferings to be poured out as a drink offering for the joy of the church of Jesus Christ. So that he could even say in the next chapter of Philippians that I long to fellowship with Christ's sufferings. That's not the way a fallen man thinks about it. But Jesus brings another element into it, which is a bit of a surprise. And even after he admits that they will drink of the cup, they will later have to figure out by experience what that all means. And they will gladly drink of it when it is offered to them. But he says to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. It is to those for whom the Father has prepared it. Now, now what's he doing here? He's showing a sovereignty that is the prerogative of God to be able to give that to whom He has prepared it for. You see, there's a wrong-headed way of thinking, and we all have a tendency to think about this wrong. It might be that we think, oh, I'm going to elbow my way now into the greatest place in the kingdom, and I'm going to do that by suffering greatly in order to get there, and I'm keeping the score. I'm going to suffer to be great. Wrong-headed way of thinking. It doesn't work that way. Because there's a sovereignty of God in the exercise of it and the spirit in which we have that has to be like Christ. It's an upside-down way of thinking from our natural fallenness. For someone to sit in those two seats, Jesus Himself doesn't even make the choice. That's God the Father's to whom He, Jesus, had yielded His complete will to. No one can simply just push ahead and elbow his way to certain things simply because he desires it. The Father himself chooses these things just like the Spirit of God chooses the gifts in the body according to his purpose and will. 
It's a misnomer that we can just think we can achieve or elbow our way to certain positions by just studying harder or applying ourselves harder or working harder or practicing more and looking for more opportunity or to be more influential to people to get them on our side. It doesn't work that way. We have to think soberly and we have to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We need to be a good steward with what God has entrusted to us and you'll get exactly what God has determined for you when you do. Well, And, and actually, what's amazing is even when you don't work hard and you're not such a good steward, that much of the time God still gives you what He has determined for you. It's just not that he's, he's not as glorified to the extent that if you had given yourself to it the right way. And with that, we have verse 24 through 28, which is uh, with that background, we in, and we encounter now the ten. They were indignant with how James and John and his mom approaches Jesus for the greatness because they also wanted some preeminence and they were stirred up. You can just see the patience of our Lord dealing in this volatile situation. He's about to die and he's got a long ways to bring these disciples in a few days and he's so patient. And Jesus addresses all the disciples and he tells them how this is going to work its way out. He says in verse 25, he says, you know, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. This is the way the world thinks. This is the way that we've uh, grown up in this fallen world thinking. In this life, the Gentiles... Uh, there's, going to be, there's great men in the Gentile worldview that exercise authority. And the one who's calling the shots, the one who's giving the orders, the one who's in control, the one who's directing everybody else, that's how you know who's great because that's the one who's doing that. And they can point to the person and they say, that's greatness. It's people position and they function by directing other people. And our Lord turns that whole thing absolutely upside down on its head. And I don't think you and I can really completely comprehend this. It's very difficult for us to get a hold of in light of this. But then he goes on in verse 26. He says, this is not the way it is for you, for followers of Jesus. The church is not supposed to look like a Fortune 500 company. The church is not supposed to look like the civil government and politics and all of the jockeying around for position and status. You do have people in the church in positions of authority, and those positions are identified, and a, a right functioning of the church are, are going to have those people in positions. But that is not where true greatness comes from. It's not greatness in being in those positions. It's not greatness being a deacon or an elder or a pastor. That's not where greatness is coming from. 
It's not a matter of who they direct or how, if they even direct other people. The directing of that doesn't make them great. In this life, big positions can be obtained by birth. It can be obtained by wealth. It can be obtained by crisis. It can be obtained by influence. And it says absolutely nothing about the character of the individual in the sight of God. Zero. But that's what makes greatness. It's Christ-like character. That's what greatness is about. And we hope our deacons and elders have character. But it's not their position that makes them great. No. In fact, greatness is obtainable by everyone. The same greatness is available for every single person here. It's not the position that makes one great or the functioning and the directing of people that makes one great. Greatness is about serving And if you're going to be first among the great, you're going to be slaving for others. You want to be great? Go and serve people in love. If you want to be really great, slave for them. And that's exactly what's going on here. No matter what your gift is, no matter what your position is in the church, it is this act of serving, giving yourself, even to the point of suffering that comes along with it. It's it's the spirit of the woman who said, and I will water your camels also. Ah, character. Character. Jesus is not here teaching a false humility. There is a greatness in serving. Even laboring to the point of exhaustion where you do not spare yourself and you sacrifice yourself. And when you take pain in serving others, there's greatness in that. That's how He wants you to think about it. You musicians over here, serve God with your hearts to the place where you take pain and sacrifice for the glory of God. And you get along with each other when you don't want to get along with each other. And you do things and you give up your time and, you're, and you do it in the right way to serve the right way. And you suffer even sometimes for it. That's greatness. See, it's not a matter how skilled you are. It's a matter of how much you serve with what you have. And there's some occasions when you're going to suffer physically to the point of maybe even martyrdom. And there's a way to do that rightly and there's a way to do that wrongly. And greatness will show that you suffer and you will rejoice for the glory of God and the attention it brings to Him and not to yourself. Suffering is the pathway to greatness. And faithfulness on that pathway is found in serving others, even to the point where you sacrifice yourself and you love them and you give of your time and you give of your money and you give of even your health and your resources and you serve people. This is greatness. 
And following our Lord's example, we have to be willing to suffer for Him, and that's going to be expressed in a concrete way here. The body, His body, His people, the church itself. You serve faithfully. You serve on the pathway to greatness, and you will suffer. You will be wrongly accused. You will try to do something good, and people will take it wrongly. You will have to suffer by giving up your desires of what you would rather be doing on this particular night when somebody else really needs your attention, and you go and you give it. There's light afflictions, there's heavy afflictions, and you may even suffer a martyr's death, but you look to Christ, and you behold His glory, and you follow His example, and from glory to glory, you'll be made into His likeness, and that will be great when you can be like Him. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, who turns the world upside down by upside down thinking of this beautiful, communicable attribute of love and grace and mercy and sacrifice, and you show it to us in a way that we would never imagine. As your disciples were somewhat dazed, did not even know what to do with this information, we ask that you would open our hearts with your Spirit to help us to understand what to do with this information you've taught us today. That we would not be like the Gentile world seeking the positions or the directing and, and the lording over, but as husbands, we might love our wives and serving them. And we might love each other as we love Christ. And as we love Christ, we might serve His people. We pray that Your Spirit would bring forth the fruit of this in our life. That when we're tempted to have our attention focused back upon ourselves, that You will take it and refocus it upon Your glory. Reminding us that the pathway to greatness is through suffering like our Lord Himself did. And may we rejoice. And find it a great joy to suffer for the name of our Christ. May we find it a great joy if we're poured out as a drink offering for the joy of the church and its unity and peace. May we love what you love and hate what you hate. And may we be like our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.